2: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast, where we have conversations that help you earn and invest in your future so you can make the right decisions now. Today, we're talking land. Oh, yeah. I never really thought I would be a real estate investor. But my wife and I decided that we wanted to buy a condo in the city to use on the weekends. And we would go into Chicago, take the kids and stay there. And it was so much fun for a few months. But then we started seeing the downsides. The kids never slept as well there. We didn't have any outside space At some point, we realized we just weren't using it the way we thought we would. And our realtor came to us and she said, you know what? I have this guy. He's looking to rent a place in the city. Why don't you just rent it out to him? And that's exactly what we did. And a year later, we were having cash flowing into our account every month. And we were like, hmm, this isn't so bad. And that was around 2008. And the real estate market was crashing and we decided to buy another property in foreclosure fixed it rented it up before we knew it we had four properties and it worked for us we enjoyed the cash flow i didn't love being a landlord but it wasn't that hard and i eventually figured out how to get most things done while owning a bunch of property and becoming a landlord is appealing There are many other flavors of real estate investing. One of the most exciting is buying and selling land. No tenants, no buildings, no hassles. What could possibly go wrong? Or maybe a better question, what could go right? And speaking of land, in 2020, I think many of us did a lot of self-reflection. For many, it was around personal growth, maybe career choices, personal finances, you name it. One topic that has really surfaced post-2020 is giving back. How can we make a difference in someone else's life, and is it possible to do good for others while actually making money? I'm really glad to share with you that our new partner, Equity & Help Literally Well, helps you do exactly that. Equity and Help grows your capital while helping others and shows how the simple act of investing can make a huge difference to American families. In addition to their 8-12% to 12% average return, which is a reward unto itself, Equity and Help makes it possible to help a family in need. Over 50% of Americans spend more than half of their earnings on rent payments. So what Equity and Help has done is build an investment model to shrink this number. The mission of Equity and Help is to give families the realization of the American dream to own a home of their own when they might otherwise have not been able to. They have already helped almost four hundred families find their home. If you're interested in a philanthropic investment model with an average return of eight to twelve percent and helping American families, you can speak to a so called philanthro investor at Equity and Help. Just visit equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Again, that's equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Jill DeWitt and Stephen Butala, after years of experience in sales, partnered to form Land Academy and the Buitt family of companies where they provide education, support, and the tools needed to start or grow a land investment business. Jill and Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Hi. I am so excited to talk to you guys about land investing. It's something I've always known about, but never really had a deep conversation. And I think so many of us... Just want to know how it works. So we're really excited to talk to you about it.
1: Good. Happy to be here.
2: So let's start with a funny idea here. Have you ever heard the saying, if you believe that, I have a plot of swampland to sell you in Florida? I know I have heard that saying. in, in a sense, selling land almost became a euphemism for being gullible. Do you think that misleads people? It's like one of those funny things we say, but then I wonder if the general population starts to think land is not something people who are smart do. It's something that you kind of make a mistake on.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate, uh, but true. In the 50s and 60s in Arizona and Florida specifically, there were some crooks that bought property, uh, subdivided it because there were no rules at all bought the cheapest property they could possibly find, which in Florida's case was wet. And in Arizona's case, which was uh, was not, you couldn't get water there and then would sell it on terms or for payments to multiple people at one time. So it's called land fraud. And Jill and I personally have tried to dispel that and done a pretty good job. I mean, there's there's crooks in every industry, and and I and I think you're kind of showing your age because the younger the person is, the more they have never heard about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I share I share that because I was real concerned about that when I started this in the in the early nineties.
2: Yeah, it, it's funny. I looked up the saying, and I guess it dates back to the land banking scam in the booming land mania decade preceding the Great Depression. And believe it or not, one of the original sellers. Was Charles Ponzi famous for the Ponzi scheme? So it was a real problem at one point. Jill, it begs the question though: Are people really getting rich doing this, buying and selling parcels of land?
0: Yes. How rich are you, Jill? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing just fine. <laughs> yep, it's it's great. And
1: we're not we're doing it the non fraud type of
0: land. Exactly.
2: <laughs> I'm glad that, that it's not fraudulent. That's a good start to it. Stephen, tell me about how you landed into this field. Like, what was your first land deal? How did you get involved? How did you hear about it?
1: You always remember. Your, that's a great question. You always remember your first land deal. I, I uh, grew up in Detroit, actually, and right out of college, Michigan State, I became a commercial, full commission, commercial real estate uh, broker, and I I was immediately disgusted and put my and punished myself for the next two years trying to buy and sell long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and assisted living buildings, and did pretty well at it until probably 97, 98-ish in one way or the other. I have an accounting background, so that really helped. But that was one of the most difficult real estate transactions you can dream up. You know, You sell a nursing home, you got to get federal approval, state approval. There's all kinds of stuff involved. There's lenders and appraisals. It took a year to do a deal. So the deals frequently fell through. It's just too much time for deals. So I began a quest on the simplest real estate deal you could find. And that ended up being land. There's no lender. There's nobody except you and the seller. There's no real estate agents. There's none of that stuff in between. You and a seller in its simplest form, uh, notarizing signatures and exchanging money. So from there, from the early 90s, you know, my disgust began in the, in the early 90s. And I finally did something about it in a big way in the late 90s. And so here we are.
2: Jill, we often talk about the difference between investment and speculation. And in the personal finance community, a lot of people feel like investment is something you buy and hold for a long period of time, whereas speculation is something you buy low and sell high pretty quickly. When you look at land investing, do you think of it as investment or do you think of it as speculation?
0: I look at it as investment because even though we don't buy with the intent to hold and take payments and do seller financing or things like that, I own it. I control the asset. So if anything goes, you know, nothing can, I'm not afraid of anything, if that makes sense. And if I hold something for a little bit longer, it's okay. It's still mine. I'm not making any payments on it other than, you know, taxes that might be due. So that's, that's why I see it that way.
1: No part of this is speculation at all. Yeah. We have no dartboards in our office. It's true.
2: In other words, you're buying something of value and you've taken your time and assessed its value and feel like you're getting a good deal. You're not hoping that it will go up in short term so that you can flip a fast profit.
0: Yeah. We <laughs> don't pull the trigger unless we're buying it so undervalued that we can double our money the same day and, and still do great. That's the whole thing. Unless I I like we just don't buy it. Stephen,
2: you know, what Jill just said is really interesting. So you wouldn't buy something unless you could sell it for, let's say, double the value the same day. It really makes me wonder how you or even the average person goes about and finds these deals. Tell me how your process evolved about finding good land deals.
1: That's the whole key to Land Academy. Uh, Around the office, we say we're a data company that happens to buy and sell real estate. So it all starts with data. In the simplest form, every county in the country has an assessor database. And, And by statutes, when they created the country, this has to be, for whatever reason, public information. So back in the day, I would go to the county assessor, get their tax roll, and process the data, get it into a format, which took weeks. You don't have to do that now. It's way easier with with these data aggregators like RealQuest and DataTree, which by the way, we're licensed providers of. You analyze the data. There's like a six-step process, six or eight-step process. We have these things called a red, green, yellow test and really analyze the market where you want to send mail, send direct mail, blind offers to owners for 20 to 30% of what you think the property's worth in a very consistent and uh, predictable percentage of people Will contact, call us back, and say, "You know what? I do want to sell this land. I, we've owned it forever." And then they start to their story unfolds. So that's how we buy property. So you know, one hundred thousand dollar property, we'll buy for twenty five, thirty thousand dollars. For the same reason that when somebody goes to buy milk, you can buy milk in three places. You can buy it in Walmart and travel that distance. It's going to be super cheap. You can buy it in a grocery store, a little bit more expensive, a little more convenient. Or you can go to the convenience store and and in, no, in none of those cases do you yell at the clerk about the prices. So we just provide this huge convenient cash liquidation service for people who have unwanted land, and then we go and resell it. So and we've been we've done almost sixteen thousand mm-hmm. deals this way. So it's not it's not a startup.
2: What I love about this process, Jill, is it sounds like you look for inefficiencies in the market and are able to capitalize on them. Let's go back to the basics. Before we get to the system, let's look at each deal. So you assess what a property is worth and automatically you know what your offer should be. It's always 20 to 30% less what you feel it's worth.
0: That's, That's what's so great is we have actually kind of divided up the company into what we each do best. And all of the Pre- picking the county, the price and the offers, the knowing where to send them and how to do it, making my phone ring. That's Steven. Yeah. That's all his stuff. He's, he's my data nut. And I don't question mm-hmm. his offers. If they're assigned to me, I'm only looking for some catastrophic possible, something that got missed that we couldn't see in the data. Is it the side of a cliff? Something like that. Other than that, we're moving on it. And then that's, that's, where my job is, I make it so darn easy. I make the sellers fall in love with me, and I buy it.
2: Stephen, is there any negotiation on the buy side, or is it like it's worth a hundred thousand? I'm offering seventy thousand. Take it or leave
1: it. So we take a data set, like let's say it's ten thousand units, and I'll price it in, a, in an automated way based on a bunch of data. And it's not complicated. It's truly not that hard. Might sound like that in this environment. Your audience might think it's complicated, but it's not. And so, I'll price out ten thousand units, do a mail merge, and run it and get it in the mail. Pretty like it's within a couple of hours. And so, the the analysis on pricing and all that happens when the seller calls us back. So you got ten thousand offers out there. The sellers are going to weed themselves out. The twenty or thirty of people or so that are going to call back. The mail just did all the work for us, so I could never make ten thousand phone calls and say, "Hey, do you want to sell your property?" and it wouldn't work anyway. So there's twenty or thirty people that call back. That's when we assess the land, and that actually happens on Jill's side. Jill and I have completely separate operations in in different zip codes with a separate staff, mostly because we want to remain in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> We're <just working> <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: So she does uh, uh, all of that.
2: Jill, do you ever actually have to go see the land? Like, how often? It- do you basically survey it based on the internet, and you know everything you need to know? Versus, is there a time when you actually have to have boots on the ground?
0: Hundred percent online. Hundred percent don't see it.
1: We do this with houses too, and mm-hmm. and we definitely have to have boots on the ground. In fact, it's funny to say that because that's the name of our program, boots on the ground.
0: Yeah, for houses we do because they need to. There's it's a whole different thing. But for all the land transactions that we do, we never get in the car.
2: Stephen, why rural vacant land? Of all things why is that so hot right now and why is there profits to be made
1: because it's so easy and because that asset type from and within all the asset types of real estate is so unwanted there are so many people i mean if i had story after story we get thank you notes after we buy their property Mm -hmm. we get handwritten notes from people that say you know your timing was perfect i inherited this property from my parents you know we needed the money that you that you bought. And you know, we thank you for sending us twenty thousand dollars on it. We were never going to use this property in Northern California. We live in Minnesota. We have drawers and drawers. We used to have a board in the office. We don't anymore of thank you notes like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not it's I feel good about it. That that asset type for whatever reason just works for me.
2: Stephen, if it's so unwanted, why is it so easy to sell on the flip side? You would think that supply and demand would match each other more. But what you're really suggesting is that they don't necessarily connect.
1: So internet marketing is just truly amazing. You know, when I was younger, I would have never imagined that it would be so easy to sell something online that in a niche way, they will come and find it. And if it's priced right, if I buy a property, $120,000 property for 20 grand, really clean it up, take good pictures, drone shots, tell a story, and then sell it for, let's say, $70,000, which we always do. We never sell for retail, never. So the buyer that buys from us, uh, and again, this is on Jill's side, walks away thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. Please send me more dirt. So you know we, we have this uh, now a huge uh, database of, of potential of buyers.
2: Jill, what are the buyers doing with these properties once they buy them? Are they developing them? Or do you think they're looking to flip them and resell them? And do you care? A
0: bull- <laughs> and do I care? That's kinda true. <laughs> Which is true. We we price them. We used to advertise that we're like wholesalers and wholesale pricing, but somewhere along the line that that word got a bad name. So I don't use it anymore. But we price them so well that some people are investors just like us and they're marking them up a little bit more. And they might be selling them on terms or things like that as seller financing to make money. And nowadays, and that used to be our, our main thing, or maybe a builder, something like that. And nowadays, though, there's a lot of people with the mass exodus from cities have said, Yippee Kaye, I've got people in Chicago buying my Tennessee properties to build their dream homes. And they're loving these five and 10 and 20 acre properties with a little pond in the back.
2: Stephen, is there ever saturation of markets? Like, I want to talk about your system in a moment, but before we get there, at some point, you're talking about selling, sending out thousands and thousands of flyers. Do you get to the point where one area is saturated, where you've gotten all those people who are willing to sell?
1: We never have. There's 150 million properties. And this is what we teach in, our, in one of our systems and courses. There's 150 million properties in this country. And it's a finite database. There's, there's this sense. First thing, I, I sit down and try to explain to everybody. And it takes weeks for people to absorb this. You need to undo everything you think about real estate. And think of start thinking about it as a data set. It's a finite database with one hundred and fifty million pieces of property. They each have owners, and they each have probably three hundred lines of data that are associated, with, starting with school system. I mean, it's just the data sets for real estate. When you really look into it, for a, like an, a person that has an, a technical accounting background, like I do, it's just it's a playground. It's it's like it's just truly amazing. I can I can send out mailers based on zoning or or anything else. So. Saturation, you know, let's say a, a business somebody who's never received any offers on their property ever, all of a sudden for whatever reason gets three offers, and you know, and so that be- that this is a very popular question. Top one of the top five questions that Joe and I get all the time. What it does is it loosens them up the same way that you watch a football game. You st- by the third time you see a Pepsi commercial, you're starting to think, okay, you know what? Maybe I do want a Pepsi. So. And I'll tell you who wins when that happens is the person who answers the phone. And that's probably when we started this, when we started this in 2015, the teaching component, you know, I've been doing this since the early nineties, buying and selling it on our own. It was all technical. The whole thing was like, all right, you got to do this with the data set. This is how you get it in the mail. And and then now it's probably 80% on Jill's side, because what we learned is that technical people don't answer the phone. You know, I'm not that good on the phone. Jill's amazing on the phone. So, that of those three offers that get sent out someone's going to answer the phone and and de- and be a delight and they're, they're they're going to do the deal so a real serious part of this and i think it's a an, an issue in every industry you got to answer the phone and be cool and be nice
2: Jill is that only on the buy side or on the sell side too or both
0: both it really is i i i didn't know too i thought this was all just a data business and i just was answering the phone and rolling with how i roll and then we're how we got to you know doing business together was he's like hold on a moment you're killing it over here. What if, because I was in a whole different industry at the time. And he's like, wait a minute. If you did what you're doing over here for what I'm doing over here with land, we would really kill it.
1: Well, and, and I'll tell the story. Okay. Jill and I slapped together first. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so Jill had a job. This is back in whatever, 2010 ish.
0: Seven. You're, you're, or you're nine, I don't whatever. know. Whatever.
1: It doesn't matter. But <laughs> she, Jill had a job. She was a, uh, very successful, lifelong successful uh, salesperson. And she had a job where her office was just off of our bedroom. And she would get up in the morning, plug her stuff in. And and she, her job was to contact potential, like warm lead people who wanted to go to college at this one specific university. And so I would listen to her talk to these potential students and then their parents. and And I said, you know what? Like, what if I we actually got together, I had a bunch of properties that were uh, left over from this huge acquisition that I did. I said, maybe you can just, we can post these on the line. You could take the calls and see what happens. She sold everything in two weeks. Everything that I hadn't, I owned those properties for probably five years. So <laughs> then we started buying property specifically to what made sense to her. And then here we are, 16,000 oh. deals later.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jill, it's an interesting point. So what I thought was going to be more of a conversation about a data-driven process has now turned into the fact that actually being the right voice on the other end of the phone call makes such a big difference. What do you think it is that you bring to these phone calls that makes people more likely to buy?
1: I want to hear the answers to these questions too. <laughs> you know, Jill and I never talk unless we do interviews like this.
0: Thanks. <laughs> you know, it's really, and, and I, I'm, I share this with everyone too, you've got to speak to people, meet them from where they come. Don't talk over them. Don't, don't talk down to them and really be honest and truthful uh, and transparent. That's really it. And make I'll tell people, look, this, this deal is not going to make or break my business. You know, and I'll say, I'm not going to negotiate. This is, this is my best offer. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's fine and then let it go. And it's amazing how many people go, you know what? I like you. You're honest. You, I know you're going to follow through and pay me on Tuesday like you said you would. Let's get it done. What's the next step? Great.
2: Jill, I've heard you say on a podcast before that you don't actually feel like you have to do much selling because you buy very appropriately so that you feel confident that what you're selling something for is a good value. And so you only buy properties in a sense that you feel very good about to start with. So it's not as hard to talk to people about them once they call.
0: Exactly. All I'm doing is maybe answering a few last questions for them, you know, filling any gaps if they want to know, you know, maybe there's something that's not in the posting they want to know about, or just often they're just calling to make sure we're real, we're here, you know, everything that we say we're going to do, we're going to do. And, and that's it. So Steven,
2: let's transition to what I like to call the system, because we just talked about a little bit of the softer side, the being on the other side of the phone. But truly, this is a game of numbers. This is an investment of numbers. How did you even come across this idea of how to build this system? Because really, you need to send out thousands and thousands of pieces of mail to get a small number of responses.
1: So they, I built a system like this, and all through the '90s, when I was some version of an accountant or some version of a healthcare real estate, you know, I was always like involved in the healthcare real estate aspects of things. And I always had a side gig where I was buying and selling land. So I went to an auction one time. This is like before the internet really kicked in, and I bought a bunch of properties and sold them and made a lot of money. I made like half a million bucks. It was you know in my checking account kind of thing. Six months later. So I began to do the auction circuit in person, starting in, it doesn't matter, like late 90s and then into the early 2000s. And it, it, it was grueling. You know, It was before I was in a relationship, uh, obviously before we had any kids or anything like that. So I got tired of it. I got tired of going to auctions and buying property and reselling it on the internet, tax, back tax auctions. So I divide—I went and got a tax roll from Maricopa County, Arizona, spent two weeks deconstructing it and getting it back into and then sent out mail. And I was just, I mean? This the response no one's ever done that before, I don't think. So uh, the response that I got was just fascinating just staggering. So from there, I sought out uh, there's a company in, in Irvine, California, California called RealQuest, which was owned by First American Title at the time. And they put this data set together for their title agents and for the oil and gas industry to get real estate data so they could find out where to drill. And I I became their customer. I convinced them. They didn't sign up little guys like me. So I, I convinced them that, you know, I went there and convinced them and sat down with them and said, I need, a, I need your data set and here's why. So they finally signed off on it and they charged me for it. And not knowing if this was going to work. Well, I kind of knew because the, I didn't know if their data set was going to work, if it was any good, how often it was updated, all of that stuff. So, you know, after that, it, it was just all history from there. I mean, it was truly one of those moments where, wow, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. If This works.
2: Steven, get more granular with me. Help me understand what these data sets look like. So they tell you what the properties are in the area. Do they give you an idea of the value of the density? Like what types of information do you have to glean from that value set in order to make a good mailer?
1: So think of your house or, or as a homeowner or a condo owner. Hey, was that condo story real in the beginning? Oh yeah, it was. You're, okay. Cause I, you know, Being a landlord is not something that Jill and I, I mean, we are landlords just by default because we buy a house and we outgrow it and then we lease it. You know, it's it's my (laughs) least favorite part of my life.
0: We undercharge (laughs) so they don't go anywhere and they don't call us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So from a data perspective, you think about your house, anything that's important to the treasurer and the assessor get together and say, what can we look at that's going to make this house? I I use houses as an example because everybody gets it. Make this house... Different from the house next door, so we can charge a different amount of money for the tax rates. You know, if you notice, everybody's real estate property taxes are are different, even next door, like like kind properties. So there's 300 columns of data, uh, and it starts with like, does it have a pool? How many bedrooms are there? How many square feet is it? When was it built? And on, so you don't have that data for for land. In fact, you don't even have an address. The vast majority of the properties in the country have not yet to be assigned an address by the post office. So it makes it tricky. You know, Jill and I developed a tool called neighborscoop.com where you can look up a property based on its assessor parcel number. You don't need an address. And it's been very successful and extremely helpful, not only to us, but all of our members. So it's just, just about everything you know you can imagine, school system, everything that's geography based. What it doesn't contain, and, and it's not, and it's because I don't it would be nearly impossible for an assessor to do this, you know, within a budget constraint is things like topography or is it waterfront or you know the the real specific asset stuff so this is a big huge puzzle that the vast majority of people in real estate don't understand and don't care and so Jill and I have have put the pieces of the puzzle together and obviously there are our members too mm-hmm. we have members that are doing way better financially than us mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> So, Steven, what you're saying is you can take all that data, put it into an algorithm such that when you send out the mailer, you have an offer on the property when it arrives at the address.
1: Yeah, and it's a very specific number and it's a unique number to that property. So we don't send out never there's a lot of people that, you know, whoever's listening to this, if you are involved in any way in a real estate education scenario where they say we send out letters of interest. Or postcards like, hey, uh, Mr. Jones, our current resident, I'd really like to talk about buying your property. Run the other way. It's just not how it works. Yeah. We send out a letter to Mr. Jones that says, we understand that you've owned your property since 1972, and we believe that it's worth, for us, it's worth about $18,222.32. We've done a bunch of deals. Please look us up on the internet. We, we are interested in buying your property for a bunch of reasons. So please give us a call and maybe we can put something together. Have a nice day. So it's really, really specific. And if I do a 10,000 unit mailer, it's every single one of those uh, properties is priced differently.
2: Jill, it sounds like for a data head like Steven, this makes yeah. sense. But I get the feeling I'm a little bit more like you. I'm on the person side, <laughs> Everybody the, <is>. the sales <laughs> side. Yeah. If you're interested in buying and selling land and you're more like us... Is this still accessible to you? Are the tools there such that if you're not a data head, you can still pursue land buying and selling?
0: Yes, slash however. It would be much easier if you align yourself with someone like him. It just comes naturally to him. Or someone There's, like you, if you're Thank me. you. There's no easy button. There's no same algorithm that he uses on every time he downloads data, because then it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Part of picking the county and picking the area and picking the properties and knowing what you're doing is you got to come at these with the right prices that are going to trigger the right response. And that's all what he does.
1: Our our group, our Land Academy group, is packed full of people who didn't know each other two months ago. And there are partnerships like this because of what you're saying, the personality type.
2: I want to ask you about your Land Academy group, but before I do, Stephen, how automated are you? Like, if you say I want, I've, I've discovered this new rural area that's ripe with land. You get your data. How long does it take you to go from data in hand on these ten thousand parcels to offers out in the mail? And how much individual work do you have to do?
1: It takes about two hours from start to finish for me, but I've sent out millions and millions of offers. Uh, and how automated is it? We have people in our group that are like they're computer people. They're they're computer people first. They're not even data people, and they for that them themselves have automated this at a, it, because it makes sense to them. I'm not a big fan of automate. I'm kind of old school in that way. I, I need to touch it and make sure it's okay. Go
0: well, ahead. Well, there's a couple things too. I was going to say for the for someone starting out, two hours to him is two weeks to somebody else. Really <laughs> seriously, you need to know that. And then. What we also do too, when he's done and he blesses it and everything, he still sends it to me for one little less, you know, we call it the test for reason. If this offer came back, would I buy it? And I I go down the list because he'll have... Multiple counties in there, multiple parcel sizes, all kinds of different variations, maybe different zoning in there. Might be some commercial, residential, whatever it is. Yeah. So I'll go down and spot check the list and spend, I don't know, like a half hour maybe. Just get a little bit of everything and make sure that then we're good to go.
1: She takes like 20 units out of a 10,000 unit mailer right. and as if they came back. right? And it's like, would, would I actually do this deal at that price? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, more often than not, I adjust it based on what she sees. I adjust it down usually. Yeah.
2: In the first half of the show, Jill and Steven discuss how they first got into land investing. After the break, we'll jump into how you can get involved in this asset class. But first... You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later... You ever feel yourself feeling limited by your banking options? Well, today I'm introducing you to a better way to money. We've all heard of credit unions, but do you know why credit unions are the best financial partner for you? Unlike other financial institutions, credit union members are owners, so profits are reinvested in you. This means better rates, better service, low or no fees, and those dreams you're chasing well, they can become a reality a lot faster. The best part? There's a credit union for everyone, and membership lasts a lifetime. Federally insured, digitally connected, join the millions of Americans already getting more from their money. Visit yourmoneyfurther.com today and find a credit union for you. Again, that's yourmoneyfurther.com. Jill, at this point, I feel like we've been talking... More in the abstract. You guys have a community, uh, Land Academy. Talk to me about some of the success stories of what people are doing within Land Academy.
0: Well, it's it's totally true. Like Stephen just said, there are many members in our community that I look at them and the deals are doing. I'm like, man, <laughs> they're doing. They're making more money than I am right now. <laughs> it's so good. So we started this back in 2015 is when we launched. We really kind of put it together in 14. It took like a year to do this. And what it is, is before Land Academy, we had so many of our buyers that would come to us and say, all right, I'm buying this from you. I'm marketing it up. I'm making money. How the heck are you buying it so cheap? Can you teach me? And we're like, sure. Okay. There's enough property to go around. We would one-off tell our customers what we're doing. Then it got to the point where there was only two of us. You know, I I can only tell somebody about the time let's just put this together. And it was the funniest thing. So we spent all this time and energy, you know, putting our whole business model in. And every time as we're writing this too, every time the question popped up, we would say, should we include this? And we always just said, yep, we're just going to, we're going to be, upfront and honest, and no one's going to buy this anyway, is what, what Stephen thought.
1: Oh, here, I, every, I wake up every morning saying, why are we doing this? Yeah. No one's going to get it. No one, everybody hates land.
0: Exactly. He's like, and back then it was total DVDs. Like we did video DVDs and it was like, an, I, I had this fancy binder and he's like, how many should we put together as we launched? It was July in 2015. He's like, should we launch, should I do five? I'm like, five, 20. I could have had 80 and we was like overnight, like, we're like, what just happened? Oh my gosh, they love it. And it was the greatest thing. And it just grew into this community that we could never have imagined. And what has the beautiful result of this is we have created a community of people that are like us. We are very good bad or otherwise we're going to be honest and upfront and tell the truth we don't hold back we're not those people that say oh that's for this group or that group no i'm going to answer your questions we're here to help each other and so our whole community is act like, like that we help each other and now we have are all doing bigger and better deals together, together. cuz we have now have a community of hundreds where We know how they think because we taught them how to do this. So when they come to me and go, Jill, you're not going to believe what I just found over here in this area. This, I I don't have the cash. We got to take this down. I've got three buyers lined up. Can you fund it? I'll sell it. This is what's going to happen. I'm like, done. I can't wire the money fast enough. And it's awesome.
2: Steven, tell me about some of the mistakes newcomers come to this field. I, I imagine that in Land Academy, you teach them how not to make those mistakes, but what are the big errors that people make?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, here's how whenever we talk, uh, whenever I get this question, or whenever we have a chance to talk about it on our own podcast, I, I say stuff like this. And, and it it's provided a self weeding out scenario. If you don't know Excel, this is not for you. <laughs> if you love fast cars and you're super young and you've never owned a business and only ever had a job at a pizza place, not for you. You know, there's just the internet's packed full of this stuff, these, these programs and that are taught by 23 year olds for 22 year olds. And I, you know, learn as much as you can about whatever you're interested in for as long as you can. You know, there's no such thing as learn more. Learning is always better, but ask somebody if you're going to pay them and you're going to learn how many deals they've done and see if you get along with them. You know, I can be very offensive. I'm like on my best behavior because this is your show. Thank you. Very, very offensive. I'm from Detroit. I think you're from Chicago. Mm. So I don't have a lot of patience for, you know, we just spent five years in California and we couldn't take it and we came back to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so I really am very, very loud about this is not for everybody. I think that if you don't have a data mindset or enjoy data in some way, or you know, we had just somebody in our group a couple days ago said, I grew up my entire life, every weekend driving out and looking at land. I've always wanted to own a farm. That kind of person is going to do great in our group. Or if you don't have core sales skills like Joe does, mm-hmm. you just, this isn't going to work. It's not.
0: So I've got two things I want to add that I noticed that people, that will cause them to fail. One is they're looking for an easy button. They don't want to be there. They don't want to do it. They don't want to, they want to outsource it all to the Philippines. And you can't do that. You can't write one algorithm that's going to work on every county and every property and every size and every whatever. It, you really have to get in and love it. You have to and dig in. And the other thing I see people fail on is they're not, not motivated. They... Well, they, they will just sit there every, they're like overanalyzing. They're afraid to push a button and send out the mail and they're afraid, well, if I do that, then the phone's going to ring. I'm like, that's a good thing. (laughs) I'm like, you got it. And then you answer the phone and then you do the deal. But then I'm not going to sound like I know what I'm doing. Well, that's why you have me. I'm helping you. I'm teaching you. I'm going to tell you what to talk. I, I have, uh, you know, a cheat sheet for you. So you know what questions to ask you and trust me after 10 phone calls, you're going to know, and you're going to get this and you're going to get more confident So that's
1: the- Here's another thing that a lot of people say to us. Can I just give you $10,000? Yeah. That makes me run the other way.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: So Jill, what you're saying is this is not passive income. Because I know a lot of people Uh, go into real estate investing and they think think I'm going to become a landlord, but really I'm going to hire someone else out. And this is just going to be passive income coming into the bank every month. That is not land investing.
0: Not if you want to do it right. (laughs) Is, Is anything passive? Really? Yeah.
1: I mean you own a condo in Chicago is that passive income?
2: No, in my opinion nothing is passive, but well, there's that's this what I think. there's this belief and I think the term passive is wrong. I think what you're really talking about with some of these is residual, which means you do a lot of hard work in the beginning and then you create these residual income streams that don't need as much care to keep up. But even real estate is it, not quite residual in the sense that There are always going to be problems. There are always going to be things coming up. You can hire out, but then you've got to manage your managers. I mean, at some point, you're always doing somewhere.
1: I completely agree with that. I
0: love it. it. I love it. I, you know, we've talked about this, you know, from day one. I can't imagine ever like really retiring. I'm a deal junkie. Yeah. I will do this till I can't, you know.
2: Stephen, we've talked about what would stop someone from doing this. And the one thing neither of you have mentioned is cash on hand. I think, Jill, I saw that you said in your LinkedIn profile that you never really use debt or leverage. Stephen, talk to me about that. Do you need money to make money in this field?
1: So somebody just, you know, we have a daily podcast. Jill and I record all of our shows and we recorded for next week. We recorded all of them yesterday. And somebody asked this question in our forum. I joined Land Academy last July, had a bunch of life stuff happen, and I built my, that dream my bank balance. Now I've, I've got about $10,000 in my bank. How should I use it? I'm already a Land Academy member. I get it. And here's my answer because it's the same answer to you. I know it sounds like a cliche, but we have gotten this Land Academy group to the point where all you need to worry about is this one thing, becoming really good at data and choosing great places to send mail that are unique coming up with fantastic deals, and then shoving them to money partners like us and like a bunch of other people that are in our group. So the answer is no, you don't need money. In fact, that person was asking me or asking us, should I start in the middle of the desert where I can buy properties for 5,000 and sell them for 10? And my answer is no, just find great properties. That's all you need to worry about <clears throat> in no time. If you do that, with you, you know, we take on partners all the time on these deals. Sometimes the deals are too big for us. We take on money partners in our group, so it's you know more than we want to spend. So no, if this is not you know, it's a, a lot less about the real estate, I think, and more about the data.
2: So Jill, I want to get this straight because I think this is an important part, uh, an important point. So if you are someone either transitioning careers or someone right out of college, and you're like, I buy into this, I enjoy dealing with land, I like dealing with data. At Land Academy, you could come in and be a deal finder and pretty much not have much cash on the table, but still find a way to get in on these deals and start building your portfolio.
0: Yep. You're oh, 100% yes. right, Doc G. That's, that's it. Find the deals. I mean, even for you, if you, imagine I came to you, the condo that you paid half a million dollars for, I come to you, Doc G, and say, I got the one next door. It's identical. I got the guy locked in. He's going to give it to me for $250,000, but I don't have the money to pull it off. Would you be in on it? You'd be like- Heck yeah. I know I what mean, that means. Where things do I sign? Yeah. I don't even know that much about it, but I know that. It's a great way to say that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so Steven, this
2: has been a time of great change in our world with the COVID pandemic, with the recession that accompanied it and with the political and social upheaval, our world is changing. Talk to me how you think that's going to affect your business in the future. Will it have an effect on buying and selling land?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's—I call it a perfect storm. And I'll tell you, in the last downturn, this ended up not being a real estate downturn, but in the last economic downturn around 2007 to 11, I guess it was, Julie and I got knocked to our knees from a real estate standpoint and kept there. And we dug ourselves out of only because we didn't have any debt. We had a ton of property that we ended up having to sell for less than we paid. And that's the only reason we put food on the table during that period. So you're not seeing that now. And here's why. The demographics for the—I almost said baby boomers for the millennials—is you know I don't need to tell you guys this stat, but it's the largest generation there ever was, and they're having a lot of kids. So, affordable housing and housing in general, there's a huge, a much bigger demand for it than there is a supply. That coupled with no one wants to live in big cities anymore uh, because they don't have to go to work anymore. The big, the, the huge employers that pay really well are figured out a way, us included. Mm-hmm. All of our people, we sent all our people home and we closed our office after about several months because the people who can handle it are still with us and they're thriving at home. So it's a perfect, I see this, only to answer your question directly, only going up. And I, we have the numbers to support that. Our sales numbers for, for land, acquisition and sales numbers for land are great. And our enrollment numbers for all of our other companies are, are fantastic. I don't see that changing. Do you? mm hmm I hate to say stuff overly optimistic like that and say, oh, it's all peaches and cream because life's just not like that. But in this case, I, I don't see a real end to it.
0: No, we were worried too. Of course, yeah. just like everybody in March, we're like, oh, and we're done kind of thing. is what we thought. And then we're like, wait a minute. And next thing you know, I, we were like all preparing to like, okay, like, yeah. hope everybody did what we said and you pay cash for everything. Cause we can all sit tight here. We're all in this together. We're going to get, we're going to weather the storm. And then the next thing you know, everybody's like, I'm out of inventory. I need to buy more land. I'm like, oh, that's what just kept happening. So we're all just doing deals even faster.
1: I mean, Jill and I have, yeah. have a storybook life. We live in like Barbie's dream house on the beach in California, <laughs> like almost literally. And we have for five years and this thing hit in March. And I said, yeah. all right, I sat her down and said, I think this party's over. Yeah. I don't want to go through that stuff. Like we did in 2010, we've got a paid for. A house in Old Town Scottsdale, which is rented, we probably have to, and we're just going to have to kind of slow this whole thing down and weather it again. And right. the exact opposite happened. We just had mats. I mean, I don't know what you're experiencing professionally, but everybody's staying at home and, and doing real estate deals. It seems like.
2: Let me ask you a more difficult question. You mentioned your difficulties between 2007 2011. How did your business model change?
1: Jill got involved, directly involved, and saved everything. That's how. Oh. She was the best thing that ever happened in my to the business that I started. She brought some flavor and some flair. And I had a single point of sales, a single channel of sales, which was my website, to sell land. And everybody just said, forget about it. And so Jill brought this the she brought life back into the company that I, I was running for. Almost 20 years. So, thank you. <laughs> that that's what changed. And now it's all over the internet, and she, we've got a network of real estate agents. And depending on the asset type that we buy, that we we send those listed. Uh, you know, there's things like there's a company called Nossyok that specializes in recreational land. So we've got a network of real estate agents that sell our property, and on and on. That's,
0: that's I think for. Thank you very much for the compliment. I love that. But for I think the biggest thing was yeah, we had a single point of failure. It was a lot of website and even eBay. He was one time. Before me, yeah. he met Meg Whitman, wasn't it? He was like multiple the, times. Yeah, I was the number one real estate person on eBay back in the day. Yeah. It was this guy. So we've got, it's like $20 million in sales on eBay. If you go look, it's comical. So, but that was it. So then, then everything happened and now we expanded where there, and that's one of the beautiful things about Land Academy. We've all, we've learned, we've been there, we can save you. And we know you should be selling here, 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 here. And every time there's a new place, yes, you should sell that, embrace it. Don't have one place as your, as your outlet.
2: So the theory held up through the downturn of 2007 to 2011, it was just you had to change how you were selling properties.
1: Yeah. We had to adjust with the times. I I didn't have a Facebook account. I'm one of these old guys that are like (laughs) angry about everything, you know, and Jill's really loosened me up about it.
0: Well, we've learned too, you know, when these things happen, maybe we used to buy, you know, at this rate and sell at this rate, And now we're going to buy a little bit less and sell a bit less. And then we're going to buy a little bit more and sell a bit more. So our spread is, is really doesn't change.
2: Well, Jill and Steven, I feel like you've brought clarity to something that I've known about for a long time, but never truly understood, which is buying and selling land. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you if we want to learn more.
0: Well, you do the what's up next and I'll say where to find us.
1: What's up next is um, we've got a lot of new products actually slated in response to what our existing members are asking us for. We've got a, new, a lot of new products slated for 2021, and, and most of them are launched. We have this large accountability group where we all get together uh, once a week. It's on a 10-week program to really help people get this going. Jill just bought a, her dream house now in Arizona, so we've got to. she's got to do that. That's what's next, really. That's, That's a real true. Answer. That's on
0: my plate. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still doing this too. And you can find us on, on landacademy.com or on we have a podcast, Land Academy Show, and we share it all for everybody too. Mm-hmm.
2: This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Jill DeWitt and Stephen Butala. That's a wrap. Thank you. I am here with Adam Carroll, and we are going to discuss something very important. It is March 2021, and it is college decision time. In the next month or two, a lot of our seniors are going to be getting their decision letters from colleges, and they're also going to be getting their financial aid forms. What a better time to talk to Adam. He is the maker of the film Broke, Busted, and Disgusted. We've talked often about this idea of college debt and what it does to our financial futures. Adam,
3: welcome to the show. How are you? Doc, Thank you for having me back. I'm great. I'm great. with the exception of the fact that now we are faced with a senior who's graduating and moving on to college. So we're this is such a timely discussion because we are looking at these documents literally, like in the last twelve hours, we've done this.
2: I was about to say this is not just a professional discussion for you, <laughs> but a personal discussion. Tell me what they get when they get that financial aid package or letter. What exactly does it tell you?
3: It's a great question and I think it's more about what they don't tell you in the in the letter itself because I've been in the industry and I understand it a little bit better. When my daughter got her financial aid letter from the university that she selected, you know, it goes through you're you're eligible for this unsubsidized federal loan, it's at this level you can you can receive up to X amount, but that means that you're on the hook for this other amount, which ostensibly your parents are going to pay for. Was the undertone on the letter? And um, you know the the students in general will have up to I believe it's twenty it's either twenty four or twenty six thousand dollars in federal funds that they are eligible to receive, whether those are subsidized or unsubsidized loans. And then they move from there into typically either private loans. Or they go into Parent PLUS loans. But the interesting thing to note, Doc, is the Parent PLUS loans are nowhere listed on the financial aid letter that the student receives. So it will mention PLUS loans available, but at the end, it says your debt load will be around $26,000 or whatever that number was. But they don't include what the parents are on the hook for in terms of those Parent PLUS loans. So when I say there, it's what they don't say... There's some reading between the lines that I think many families probably miss in terms of, okay, well, it says you get this much and you owe this much. That's it, right? Well, that's that's only part of the story.
2: I feel like there are two specific questions here. So help me understand this. Yep. There is the student who knows where they're going already and then gets this financial aid letter and sits down with the parents and says, okay, how are we going to fund this? Yep. But then there's also the student who isn't sure which university or college to go to and is comparing multiple levels, letters. Am I correct in that point? Yes,
1: yeah.
3: So it's different schools will offer different amounts. And, and the the quick description of that is the universities are using something called strategic enrollment. And strategic enrollment, basically, to to create a visual for you, is imagine there are buckets of money that the university can dole out in aid, in awards, in grants, scholarships, what have you. On those buckets, there are descriptors. So it might be uh, a female from the Midwest studying education and really wants an emphasis in special ed. One of them might say, "Minority student from a low-income family who is in STEM." Another one might say, "We need a trumpet player from the Southwest." uh, You know, that's going to study whatever. And And I'm being facetious on some of these, but some of them are very, very specific. When that money is doled out, it's gone. So the strategic enrollment process basically necessitates that students fill out their FAFSA and they apply for those schools early. Because the money is doled out early. So we're in March, you know, we're we're a few weeks away from really these students saying, okay, this is it. I'm signing on the dotted line. This is where I'm going. But many of them, if they're just now looking at those financial aid packages and comparing and contrasting, A, there may be less funds available at those schools where they're kind of a holdout, you know, like, well, if I can get more from this school. Um, But B, there is the option of pitting one school against another. And so you could say in my local area here, it might be Iowa State and Iowa, the University of Iowa and Iowa State University. And if you went to one of the schools and said, I'd really like to go to the University of Iowa. However, Iowa State's giving me this extra presidential scholarship. And so it decreases my loan liability by $4,000 a year. If you could somehow make that up, I think I would much rather go to the University of Iowa. Some schools, they'll play ball. They will, they will figure out ways to get those students in, assuming they need that demographic or what have you in their strategic enrollment plan. Um, so I, I, my suggestion to your listeners is don't be afraid to, to look at one and look at another and say, well, I'm, I'm going to get more out of this school. My overall indebtedness is less. I'm going to try and get the same deal at the school where I really would like to attend.
2: I feel like people sometimes look at the extremes, right? So I can go to X school and have no debt, but maybe it's not the best school I could go to, or I can go to this really exceptional school, but I'm going to be loaded in debt. How do you tell parents and students to weigh these different aspects? Like, how do you make a decision? I've I've, I've heard some people say, don't go to any school you're going to come out of in debt. And I don't think that's perfectly the answer either, what are some of the thoughts that should be going through parents and students' minds right now?
3: I I, th- I would bucket these into three categories. One is um, the ROI. So what is the ROI of this school? And if you're going to go $100,000 deep in debt, what are the graduation rates? What are the placement rates? How many of these students are coming out um, you know, with a successful career in the major that they've selected? And- the school keeps all those, all, the, all those pieces of data, but you do have to ask. You have to be an astute, you know, an astute uh, customer of that university, if you will, to ask those kinds of questions. There are some schools that will say, oh, the, uh, the placement rate is 60%. I mean, that means that someone comes out of a, you know, an engineering school and they don't get placed in an engineering firm. And so we want to know exactly how many students are being placed into firms or going into firms in their field of study. So the first is ROI. The second is, what is the decision maker for you of this school? Because I know some students like LSU has a lazy river in the shape of LSU on (laughs) campus. And when I saw they did that, and it was like a $10 million project or some ridiculous thing. I thought, well, the only students that go to the lazy river are lazy students, right? So if we're going to a school because they have an amazing you know, rec center, or you can swim with the dolphins on Saturday or whatever, that I think you have to call into question because there is a price you're paying for that. And it may not make sense when you get out and you're, you know, you're not making the kind of money that necessitates or that, that uh, allows you to pay that off. Um, the third thing is Looking at the student debt load relative to what your starting salary is going to be. And this is one of those that I'm hammering on my, my kids uh, every chance I can, Doc. And it is this. Listen, if you're going to go be a teacher, my daughter thinks she, she wants to be an educator, which I love her for. And I think she'll get out there and she'll realize that leadership is her thing. And she's going she's to advance quickly. But I said, you have to know that you're probably going to make forty dollars to $42,000 a year starting out. And so you should not leave school with any more than thirty dollars or $40,000. And so the students that I've found that have the biggest challenge are those that pursued an education degree. at maybe a private school, and I'm, I'm not picking on education, but using that as an example. They came out with eighty dollars or $90,000 in, in government and private loans, and they're making $40,000 a year and having a hard time making ends meet we've got to reconcile what is the career choice and how much are we willing to go into debt in order to pursue that career choice. Um, and, and then I think one last item is, I know there's a lot of folks out there who have their dream school. I want to go to USC. I want to go to NYU. I want to go to you know, wherever it may be. Love that. Honor that. I'm all for it. However, if you think you're going to go on to an advanced degree, get your advanced degree from those places. Don't get your undergrad from NYU or or from you know, some, some school that you think is the pinnacle because the bachelor's degree now is just table stakes. It, it's a completion bias. It just says you can finish. If you are intending to go on to a master's program, save your money for those kinds of programs because a master's degree from NYU will be worth far more in the marketplace than a bachelor's degree from NYU and a master's from a state university.
2: I feel like another way around that is do two years of community college and then transfer to your dream school. Oh, so, right. So you get a heavily discounted first two years. Yes. I also wanted to point to the fact that I feel like there must've been a formula you use there, but didn't tell us the formula to debt after college versus starting salary.
3: Um, the formula that I've heard is one-to-one. I mean, don't, don't borrow more than what your, your annual salary is going to be starting out. And the reason behind that is your debt payment is going to be around 11%, or I'm sorry, it's one i think it's 1.1% of whatever the balance is. So on $40,000, your payment's going to be 440 bucks. And $440 if you calculate that as a percentage of your income, it's probably going to be in the neighborhood of like 10 to 15% of your take home. Um so that is a that is a significant amount, but most students today that are paying back student loans are at more like a 20 to 22 or 23% Of their income is going to to student debt repayment, which makes freedom and flexibility and options extremely limited. And from my perspective, the reason we go to school is to get a leg up on the future, to get a good job, but, but ultimately to have the things that people want in life. And if you are going deep in debt in order to achieve that, it just pushes out those things that you want that much further, in some cases, 10 or 20 years because the average student loan debt payback period right now is 21 years long.
2: And make no make no mistake, the amount of money you make between the ages of 20 and 30 when you don't have debt, could compound to such a great extent that it gives you an incredible amount of freedom as you get older. So at this time of year, these kind of discussions are really important because hampering yourself with a huge amount of debt without a concrete plan after college is probably not a good idea. Adam Carroll, thank you for coming on. First and foremost, congratulations to all those out there who are looking at starting college soon. You got into the school. Wonderful. Let's make sure you can fund it and be prosperous for the rest of your life. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Thank you. Cool. That was a fun conversation.
1: Good. Thank too.
2: Did you feel like you got to say and describe what you do and that it, the, your story came out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think if it, it makes so. sense to you, Doc G, yes. Yes, exactly.
2: It, it does make sense to me. And I, I like the fact that you married the data with the sales, because I think that is lost on a lot of people. And um, I think it makes a lot of sense. The data is what everyone gets caught up on, right? Because like you kind of said, there's this group of people who totally understand data. And to them, this is very natural fit. Um, but those people also are not as likely to succeed unless they understand the other side, too. So
1: I'm a working example of, you know, you shouldn't, if you're, if you, unless you're like Superman or Wonder Woman, you can't, you need, you don't need to do this alone. Just find a great partner. We, we do live events. And uh, the biggest thing I've noticed about, we do one live event a year before the COVID. And The thing that really my takeaway from those events is that people make like lifelong partners at those live events. They end up accidentally sitting next to each other and they're partners forever, business partners. Yeah. So because they have fill to do the they
0: fill the other piece. Yeah. You're not gonna always. You're usually not. Most of the time, not good at both.
1: I'm mean, I a working example. I mean, you filled the other piece and mm-hmm. whatever it was. First time.
2: Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about it and clearly uh, to your guys' success, because it sounds like you're doing a great job. And uh, I think it's an interesting story. And again, something we hear a lot about, but most people just don't understand.